You've been sold the idea that financial independence is all about some number on your account statement. Or even worse, that you don't qualify because of where you started out. That's just not true. It's not about some well-kept secret of the wealthy. It's about finding the right information and knowing how to apply it. On the Get Ready for the Future show, we're answering your questions so you can start making real financial change today. The journey to true financial independence begins right here, and it starts with you. Continuing our mission to help people discover, protect, and share true financial independence. This is the Get Ready for the Future show, and we welcome you into another edition. My name is Scott Inman, and this week, it is a very special show. A few weeks ago, we had a chance to bring in Dr. Jeffrey Roach. He is the chief economist for LPL Financial for an event in West Little Rock for clients and their guests. We wanted to record our radio show and podcast as a part of that event. So we did what we called the Get Ready for the Future show live. And now we are going to bring it to you on this format. So get ready, learn about the economy, about the markets, about the upcoming presidential election. We talk about it all with Dr. Jeffrey Roach. Here is an evening with Dr. Roach. As we dive in here, uh, you know, I think, and I don't want to talk, I don't want to speak for everybody, but I do think it's real easy to feel better about the economy as we sit here in 2023 than if we were sitting here a year ago. Uh, Inflation has gotten a little bit better. It's cooled off. Uh, The market has rebounded. But there are certainly... There's certainly a lot of headwinds, and if you read multiple economists, which I don't, I just read you. I don't read anybody (laughs) else. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, If you read multiple economists, there's a real divergence of thought as to what these headwinds, what kind of impact these headwinds are going to have on the future of the U.S. economy. So before we do the deep dive, if you could just start off with kind of your bird's eye view of the, the current health of the U.S. economy. So I do I do these talks a lot. I th- I think one of the best analogies that I've come up with to answer your question is the analogy of we get we got to know our history, right? That the post World War II economy is a really great way to inform ourselves in the post pandemic economy, and I'll I'll explain that one one of the reasons why I think that this is very helpful. Uh, in just very kind of in cursory responses, you know, we actually had two consecutive quarters of negative growth in 1947. Of course, you have to go back a little bit in time, right? When the last time we had negative uh, growth, two quarters with no recession, that happened in 2022 and it happened in 1947. Think about post-World War U.S. People were shifting around, right, coming back from war, pulling out of the labor force, taking advantage of GI bills. You know, my grandmother was a seamstress, uh, so she was a a first-generation Polish girl from Buffalo, moved, found herself in Buffalo, New York, uh, the opposite uh, weather patterns than Arkansas. (laughs) Uh, So if you know anything about lake effect... Uh, you know that you know something about Buffalo, but going into the war, right? So here's the seamstress. She's making curtains. She's making all the you know the normal home furnishings. Shifts over to cots, right? Any anything related to military. Think about Cadillac. Cadillac made hardly any 
just uh you know regular engine cars you know civilian cars they shifted to m1 light tanks for our allies in europe after the war there's this huge gyration of of labor capital i think that's a that's a great way kind of the bird's eye view mm -hmm. of where we are in 2023 relative to kind of this transition from a a, a world where you know governments were coming in and saying you can't do business anymore right <laughs> they shut things down as things reopened as things you know were shut down longer and longer you know you had people moving around yeah i can't be a, you know sit at home if i own a restaurant i'm i'm moving to another uh sector so a post-world war ii economy informs our view about a post-pandemic economy anyway i'll leave it at that we can yeah. talk a lot about that but it's it's a fascinating way I'll, I'll i'll add one more comment and that is i think in so many ways where we are right now in a, in, in this world where there are certain sectors that are doing great and then certain sectors not so much i think a lot of it is you hearken back think your your uh junior high days or elementary school days you f you first go to a quarry the first time you ever go to a cave or a or even at the lake and you you try out your echo right echo you know you you wait well, we got a little one here i think there there's that delay right you yell something and you got that little bit of delay from your yell it goes out bounces comes back to you i think a lot of that i think ill is illustrative of why we're not in recession yet yeah. even though we might have some headwinds anyway there's a lot to to think about uh, but that's just to whet the appetite i think for tonight's discussion yeah and so you mentioned the the two negative quarters of gdp growth last year and you know some people say you know they define a recession like that it's not the definition officially of a recession so we haven't had one yet but that's the big that's the big topic of discussion is are we or aren't we and if we do how long will it last and how bad severe will it be? And, and that seems to be the, the place we've been for about a year and a half now in, in trying to determine that. And then I read this, that the Atlanta Fed now predicting that quarter three GDP this year could be as high as 5.8%. What do you make of that? And where are you on the are we or aren't we and how long could it last? Right, right. So one of the reasons why we're not in recession yet is because we have had uh, so much stimulus injected into our economy from mm -hmm. a year and a half ago. And that excess savings is still providing a lot of impetus for spending. I was just talking to one of the guys who's not here. He's next door yeah, about <laughs> uh, the Beretta factory in northern Italy. Yeah. Uh, we were one of the bazillion people traveling this summer. So we've had this pent-up demand for travel. Remember... 2021, it was all about goods. Everything was, you know, you're going on your Amazon app and, and purchasing goods. There's been this shift toward this massive demand for services. Uh, TSA throughput numbers are above 2019 levels. So just measuring the number of people coming through uh, security. We went to Italy in May with my family. We thought we were smart and we beat the, the rush. And the, no, we didn't. <laughs> uh, so there's still this pent up demand for services, leisure, hospitality, the travel, particularly one of the service sectors uh, that's starting to wane, but it hasn't slowed down enough to even show up in the broader economy. But once that does, once that spending splurge finishes, 
I think there's a there's a chance, a likelihood that we get a, a short and shallow recession, perhaps by the beginning of next year, maybe even as early as uh, the end of this year. What's your best thought on what short is as far as duration? Right. Definitions matter, right? What's yeah. short? Well, post-World War II, recessions average about 10 months. We think we'll be below average. Okay. So less than, less than 10 months. Okay. Uh, and part of that is because, you know, you think about banking. You know, I started my career in 2004, coming out of graduate school. My first job, my first project, no kidding, on the trading floor for Bank of America, they say, okay, here's the, the young kid that, uh, you know, what can we use him for? We'll just get our random projects. Here's the project for you. Can you, do, can you just do some research on this acronym CDO? collateralized debt obligations and CLOs, collateralized loan obligations. So if you were guys were around in that time, uh, you know what those acronyms are. But uh, if you don't know, count your blessings. Uh, we don't have that kind of an environment today. So the 04, 05 period, uh, a lot more uh, risky than where we are, say, you know, coming out 2021, 22, 23, here we are today. Okay. So we're getting really deep dive with this question, but I think it's important because people here probably, how many of you, raise your hand if you hear inverted yield curve thrown around anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's, let's talk a little bit about that, why it matters. And, and, and if you could explain to the audience what it actually is and, and what do you, how much importance do you put on that? Well, that's, that's a good question. I think, you know, I, um, when I was a grad student at Clemson, I had a lot of Clemson football players in my class. I don't know what you think about Clemson football, um, but I had to, I had to work hard to keep it practical, uh, keep them awake. I, the question about yield curve, I'm thinking, okay, how would I explain that to Clemson football player? So normally, investors want to be compensated for taking on more duration risk, meaning if you're going to tie up your money for 30 years, 10 years, you need to be compensated for that risk of having your money tied up than if you're putting it in an, an instrument that has shorter duration, meaning you know, it's like a CD, right? Right. Um, an inverted yield curve means that that relationship's not holding, meaning you're not compensated more for tying up your money longer than shorter. Uh, what does that mean practically? It, it influences... I think at the core where we all sit on Main Street, it influences access to capital uh, from lending institutions. So you own a business, uh, you want to buy a house and borrow, uh, whatever it is when you're accessing, wanting to access capital, an inverted yield curve, meaning it's, it's not in its normal upward sloping relationship, it's going to restrict access to capital. That by definition is going to restrict the growth of an economy. And that's why I guess it is considered kind of a harbinger exactly. of a recession. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we hear all the time that consumer spending makes up almost 70% of GDP. And right now, as you've already kind of alluded to, we're still spending money. The consumers are still spending money. And, you know, I think about it from a, I'm not an economist, so from a layman's perspective, what causes a consumer to stop spending money? I feel like it's one of two things. You lose your job or you can't borrow any more money. So let's talk about credit card debt and let's talk about the unemployment rate, okay? 
the unemployment rate still at a 50-year low, do you see pressures on the labor market right now? It's such a regional question. Mm. Um, and it, and I think, you know, it's a, it's a challenge. So I, before I moved back to the Southeast, so I grew up in the Southeast. I was born in New York. I referenced my grandmother, Buffalo. But I grew up in Greenville, South Carolina. Spent most of my career in Charlotte. I had a... Um, you know, wayward wandering is you know, my, uh, you know, the prodigal son kind of thing. I went to California. I quickly got right, moved back to Southeast. <laughs> when I, when I moved as, with my family in 2021 from Silicon Valley to Charlotte, my inflation rate was probably a negative a thousand, <laughs> right? You multiply that a couple million times you're getting what's happening in the U.S., mm. meaning people have moved from higher cost of living areas to lower cost of living areas. They got bonused. Yep. I was paying six grand a month for housing. I tripled my house and I'm paying a third of that, right? Moving from a higher cost to lower cost. So I think that the, the practical application of that is the spending can happen because a lot of people's living expenses actually went down, mm -hmm. which does not make any sense if you listen to just mainstream media on the impact of inflation. Inflation hits different people in different ways. I think that's kind of the key driver on what's happening. Again, post-pandemic, it's like a post-World War II economy. There's a lot of things going on. People certainly are feeling the effects, uh, but some people aren't feeling the effects as much as you know, as others. And so you're, you're right. I think labor markets are key. You lose your job. Yes. You're going to pull back your interest in, you know, upgrading your vehicle or, uh, doing a vacation. Labor markets are key access to capital, the cost of capital. So you can't pull out money from equity as easily as you could, right? Your, your home equity, HELOC loans, right? Home equity loans, Cost of putting that money on a card and carrying a balance, that's certainly going to hurt. Yeah. So, yes, labor markets are key. Interest rates are key in order to kind of look at, okay, what's, what's around the corner, anticipating that, that curve in the road ahead. So while we're on the, we kind of mentioned the credit card debt, while we're on the debt conversation, let's talk about the United States debt. Uh, on August 1st, as many people in the room probably know, Fitch Ratings downgraded its rating for the U.S. from AAA to AA+. Now, what does that really mean, and, and what impact does it have on the near term and maybe even the long term? So three main rating agencies in the U.S., uh, S&P, they downgraded our debt in 2011. Uh, the, then you have Fitch, and they finally got the memo. <laughs> Took them a few years. <laughs> And you have Moody's. Those are your three main rating agencies. I think to answer that question, you have to go back, student history, 1969, Ministry of Finance in France, the exorbitant privilege of the U.S. That, that phrase, exorbitant privilege, anybody remember that? That was in reference to the incredible stability of dollar markets, U.S. dollar, our currency. He was getting at what I think 
is is protecting the economy from you know feel i guess uh paying the bills if as it were from the fitch downgrade as long as dollar markets remain stable and and the majority of how things are traded in the world right global markets we have this exorbitant privilege uh of being able to continue to issue debt <laughs> and and get away with um rates either going really really high or a US dollar really devaluating think about the last couple of weeks fitch downgraded what happened to the dollar actually went up mm. uh dollars had a, a a great run the last uh even couple of weeks as the markets have been kind of choppy uh the point is that i think you you go back and you say okay philosophically you know where where is this well it's such a relative game kind of like the story you know you go so i love hiking and camping on the appalachian trail which runs starts in georgia runs along the border of tennessee and north carolina um and we've we've seen black bear on our hikes but as long as you're faster than your hiking partner you're okay <laughs> that relative game matters in the in the economy too and i think that's where um i think that that's where it's so important to think okay where are we relative to europe where are we relative to asia where are we relative to argentina <laughs> latin america the us yes we're the maybe the prettiest pig in the slop but at least we're the prettiest one <laughs> that gives us a little bit of um i guess you could say borrowed time where the fitch rating is is kind of irrelevant you know markets sold off when s p sure. downgraded in 2011 but two weeks three i guess is three or four weeks later you know the markets hit new highs right even in 2011 after that downgrade same thing with fitch mm -hmm. um so it's it's a matter of remaining uh true to who we are as a nation because i think that keeps us in in that that privileged position a lot to say there too yeah. but well, i'll leave it i'll leave it at that i'm going to hang out on fitch for just a second because that group also hinted recently that it may be downgrading the credit rating of some of the 70 banks that it monitors you know we all remember the bank failures from the spring those those made a lot of headlines too so a question here just do you believe our financial system is stable big question well i hinted at it uh with comparing today with where i was when i started my career in 04. Mm -hmm. so i'm not as tied to the trading floor today like i was in 04. but from what i know from what i talk and hear from my colleagues i think i think it's very fair to say that this environment is nothing like the environment going into the great financial crisis uh so i i would i would answer the question saying yes i think i think credit unions play an incredible role uh, a positive role in providing you know stability in the banking system that we need regional banking i i'm i'm a proponent of of regional banking uh i always feel sad when there's more you know takeovers and in, in becoming you know larger and larger uh so yeah so the short answer is uh we are much more stable today than we were 
you know, a decade and a half ago. Uh, and I don't, I don't see, I don't see systemic risk like I did, uh, in 04 and 05, 06. Um, my best, my best forecast probably as a, as a professional forecaster was leaving Bank of America the end of 06, <laughs> leaving that world. But yeah, I don't, I don't think, I'll, I'll tell one story here um, to illustrate uh, the stability of it all. When I was at B of A, I'll never forget this besides my CLO and CDO projects. You know, I, I'll never forget when one trader was yelling to my boss to pick up the blankety blank phone greenspan's on the line <laughs> and and no joke greenspan would call us because b of a had such a wide footprint on deposits and what was happening remittances to mexico for some reason greenspan really loved thinking about watching what we saw remittances coming going out of the united states same thing when i was at visa i was at visa during covid you know, central bankers are are talking to people in the industry all the time, saying, "Okay, tell us what you see because we don't know what's happening." <laughs> right? We have official government data, but I want to hear industry data. I want to mm. see industry data. Yeah. Um, that that information sharing happens twenty four seven, and when you kind of read the tea leaves, you think, "Okay, yeah, this we're we're in a state we're in a much more stable environment than we were." Um, oh five, oh six, oh seven. Our first question of the night. We'll get a mic to you there. Interest rates on loans, like thirty-year fixed-rate loans, lulled along a long time for to the seventies and eighties and nineties, and worked their way down to three percent, two and a half percent, something like that. And it took a long time to get there. And then over the last year and a half, two years, they've gone at light speed up to five, six, seven percent. And I don't know where they go from there. Do you see them going back to those low levels that are really, I think, unsustainable because they don't, they don't pay a return enough? But, but do you think that they will work their way back down anytime in the near future? Hmm. Short answer, no. Uh, so in some ways, you know, we're getting back to more, quote unquote, normal ranges I think it's I think the the better way to look at the big history of it all is to say the two and a half to three and a half was not normal. Yeah. And so we're getting back to something that's more stable and normal for how the the workings of the housing market, residential market in general work. So, yes, if you're you know, if you were in the market for a house in the 80s, you're still thinking, hey, eight percent, seven and a half percent is not bad. Um, we're not, we're not going to go back to the two and a half anytime soon. I don't see that. I, I see us kind of correcting the, the risk of another bubble and, and getting to rates that are really long-term reasonable. Um, I think what's happening, and it's interesting when you think about housing, and this is a, a tangent from your question on mortgage rates, but you, know, we've had a, a shortage of supply for a decade. And so what's happening is with higher rates, people that are homeowners that have locked in two and a half percent, they're never going to put their house in the market. I'm never going to put my house in the market, at least for a very, very, very long time. <laughs> so it's going to be great. Speaking of investment opportunities, it's great for new home sales, right? Builders that are, you know, building. So there's, this is why what's so exciting about economics, I can get excited about economics, is that right? That's good. There. There's there's going to be 
periods that you're going to say, yes, avoid this, but hey, there's opportunities here. So I think with, with the mortgage market where it is, I think it's going to be very interesting and potentially very positive for like a Lennar and a DR Horton, some of those home builders that are going to provide in this period of just undersupply uh, an offset where you're not going to see any existing, hardly any existing home sales coming on the market. A good question. I'll kind of have a follow-up about that. Housing was actually my next question. So when you factor in the mortgage rates, and you said earlier you talked about the gyration going on post-COVID, even though the supply is down, the, the prices have held up really strong. We had that real shoot-up in 2021 in home prices. They haven't come back down tremendously. How about affordability for, for, for people who are buying homes and weighing that against where rents have gone, just kind of talk about the housing backdrop and in, in how that relates to the U.S. economy moving forward. I mean, are people going to be able to afford homes in the future, I guess, is really what I'm asking. Right. So I showed this graph, actually, one of our, our conferences, I think John was, was at, where I show this graph about the units under construction for single-family homes and showing, you know, right uh, superimposed on that same line, the number of units under construction for five and up unit, multi-unit projects. We've never had more multi-unit family projects being worked on than we've ever had since we've collected the data, mm. which is great for the millennial group. You know, they're, they're coming into their peak home buying they're going to have a, a challenge if they want a, a single family, you know, home. Um, so the, the, the bottom line to your question about housing affordability, I think once more and more of those multifamily units come online, you're actually going to see a couple things happen. Rents decline and opportunities for those that are actually in the market to buy have, have a, a, a moderation in those units. Moderation in single family, that may be another story. Again, yeah. that's why it's so important to say, okay, there's there, there could be two very different things going on here. That's why it's so important to kind of separate one from the other. And back to your point about geography matters here too, mm -hmm. right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, affordability in Arkansas is much different than affordability in California. Well, unfortunately, all the Californians are moving to Charlotte too. So Charlotte affordability <laughs> now is, is a real problem, yeah. especially the drivers too. Yeah, <laughs> they're bringing with Highway their driving, driving skills too. All right, so we kind of talked about interest rates. Let's get into the uh, to the Fed, and you know everybody's very aware the Fed has raised interest rates eleven times in the past seventeen months, taking the Fed funds rate from near zero to around a range of five and a quarter to five and a half. And reading the LPL outlook, uh, the team there expects the rate hikes will end by the end of the year. And we've seen long-term Treasuries go up in the past month. You've kind of already alluded to this about. The question about our mortgage rates going to go back down, but do are we in a higher for longer period now, or or do you think that the Fed will be cutting rates anytime soon? So the Fed tightens when there's risk of an overheated economy. The Fed loosens rates when the economy is showing signs of either recession or a very very deep weakness. I think the Fed's going to be at a point where perhaps by the end of this year, most likely beginning part of next year, where they could maybe pull off, pull off some of those rate hikes. 
uh, not anywhere near going to where they were for several years where mortgage rates were really unnaturally so low. I think, uh, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, a, you know, a risk that, you know, the fed maybe is, is too aggressive. Right. And we, we like to say, you know, something will break, you know, when the fed continues to hike and hike and hike. Um, if, if you're interested, the Kansas city fed puts on an annual symposium at Jackson hole, speaking of bears, (laughs) and Yellowstone and Grand Tetons and all that. Uh, so every year they put this symposium on, and it's starting this Thursday. Uh, Chair Powell is actually talking on Friday, uh, 10.05 Eastern time um, out in Jackson Hole. And uh, they often use the symposium to announce any tweaks to their policy. In fact, in 2020, there was uh, so a lot of market-moving uh, statements. Uh, it was a remote uh, a virtual symposium, um, but in 2020, the, the the chair of the Federal Reserve talked about different ways of approaching inflation targeting. So I actually think uh, this will be this will be quite interesting. Now, when I say something interesting, I, you got discount it maybe a little bit. <laughs> but Friday's statement uh, when when Chair Powell gets on to give his talk might be very interesting. But uh, yeah, the the risk is the Fed maybe becomes too aggressive. And perhaps, you know, the economy falls into recession sooner rather than later. But best case, hikes ending by the end of the year and potentially going the other way sometime 2024. So they meet in September. I don't think they're going to hike in September. Uh, They probably won't in November either, but that's a little bit of a wild card with November. Okay. Yes, sir. My question's related to the upcoming election cycle and the potential impact on the U.S. economy going forward into next year? Yeah, we've, we've done a, a, a good amount of research on, on what that might impact, how that might impact um, the markets. Markets often, historically, big picture, you know, over you know, the course of many cycles, the markets often like uh, you know, divided Congress. Um, that, that, that often, you know, does, does well for markets. Uh, and it's inter- it's quite interesting because it goes both ways <laughs> um, whenever there's tension. And I think it's, it really makes sense. I think that that's that's a fair kind of, you know, bumper sticker kind of way of looking at it. I'll answer your question in terms of what it might look like, you know, with who who gets in what and where and when and how. But I think is the the the, the divided Congress the, and then the pressure on keeping any one side from maybe going off the rails too much, right? Uh, maybe that's, you know, that's why markets tend to respond favorably like that. Um, you, you know, it's a little bit early to say too much, right? So I think um, the field is so wide. Um, it, you know, you, we got to wait a little bit till we, you know, uh, pare that down. But in, in essence, hey, look, for, um, l- look for anything that's pro-growth, um, I, I revealed my hand a little bit when I said I was happy of moving back to the southeast. Maybe I revealed a little bit too much, but hopefully we're among friends here. Yeah. I think, you know, I think one thing that I like to tell folks is, you know, raising taxes or cutting spending doesn't have the biggest bang for your buck than you get from pro-growth policies. You, you grow out of your problem. You can't cut spending enough. 
I mean, you, you just can't. There's just so you right. You can't raise taxes enough. It, it's growth that has the biggest bang for your buck. We saw that in 2001. Uh, and so pro-growth policy, like, you know, the uh, accelerated depreciation, remember that back in the day? Some of those things that come that can be truly pro-growth, that's what you want to see. That would be a, a bullish for the markets. I'm glad he asked that question because that was on my mind as well. Um, you spoke about stimulus um, implementation earlier and so during the past several years we've seen a number of sizable government bailouts forgiveness initiatives um, that have significantly increased the national debt so how do you see that growing national debt um, impacting us in the short and long term yeah it's it's a great question i think you know i i, I actually talk about this to my 14 and 11 year old because I try to, one of the fundamental things in life is you you pay for, there's consequences for what you do, right? I mean, it's like, okay, that's that's number one. You're going to get through life well if you understand things have consequences <laughs> and choose wisely. Uh, that's, that's certainly a kind of a key for when you think about what's the impact in the economy from stimulus, for example. Um, I think another key goes back to my parenting uh, 101s is work is fundamentally good. You think about the joy you get from work. You think about the uh, fulfillment you get, the flourishing that you get from work. You know, it, it, uh, it's, it's hard to teach kids that, right? But work is fundamentally a good thing. Um, that's kind of related to the, to the stimulus uh, comment that you made. I think, I think as it relates to national debt, relates to, you know, when does that bill come due? It, I, it goes back to growth again. If you look at where we've been in, in history, where we've, we've had profligacy in spending or, you know, in, in bailouts, and then as an economy recovers, you can kind of pull back some of those negative effects. You got to have pro-growth to be able to deal with, uh, you know, where we are from a national debt standpoint. Worst case scenario is, okay, if you have an aging population and you have a shrinking labor force, that, that bill come due probably in the next 10, 15 years. So that's where you say, okay, what's the, what's the bear case? What's the bull case? Um, I think I would probably say we're slightly favoring the bull case because lending markets are okay. We're actually seeing a recovery in prime age workers, 25 to 55. They're the key drivers of productivity. You actually are seeing some signs that the artificial intelligence might provide some of that productivity boost that you need from the aging population and the just, you know, more people you got to provide for. So anyway, all that to say is if you look at the bear case, the bull case, we're probably slightly skewed in favor of the bull case, meaning if we get a recession, that's shorter than the post-World War II average of 10 months, as I just mentioned. And you get maybe that fourth industrial revolution, provide a little bit of a kick to that productivity number. You could actually see some of those projections that the Congressional Budget Office publishes. They probably won't be as bad as what they're putting it out. But yeah, if you, if you go to the CBO, it's, uh, it's you know, nonpartisan. CBO stands for Congressional Budget Office. And you kind of see their graph on, you know, how bad debt could be if we don't 
have a decent growth period. Um, yeah, it looks, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's out to 2040, something like that. Things have been bad, but a lot can happen in, in you know, 10, 10, 15 years. I love that you talk about growth because I think that that's kind of a component of my next question. We'll talk a little bit about inflation. We've already alluded to it a little bit. Obviously, it's cooling. And, you know, when the numbers come out, we're always comparing it to the year over year, right? And that's what we're seeing drop. But I, I think, and there has been some discussion about this, but I think about the term cumulative inflation, right? I mean, from where prices were a couple of years ago, it's still way higher now. Uh, and it's not going to go back. When we talk about inflation cooling, we're just saying the rate is cooling. The, the, the rate at which prices are going up is cooling. Prices are not going down uh, in most cases. But I tie that to, well, inflation is not a big deal as long as we have wage growth. So talk about where we are with wage growth. Yeah, wage. Uh, before I talk wage growth, let's let's kind of button up kind of the inflation story. So, sixty five percent of households in the U.S. are homeowners, meaning that that majority of Americans can pretty much disregard you know ninety percent of the inflation rates, hmm. um, at least most recently. Right. So there, Maybe the cumulative is a little bit different, but if you look at last month's inflation rate, mostly driven by rent, rent prices. And so I think, you know, it's interesting for those households that have had the ability to be flexible in their consumption patterns, inflation's not quite as bad as what, you know, what, what the actual numbers say you know, 9% last June, and then, you know, then eight, seven, six, you know, keeps on uh, falling. You're exactly right, though. When you, when you think about your own wallet, when you look at your bank account, you're not looking at year-over-year year rates of change. <laughs> you're looking at, okay, this cost me this today, and the dollar level of what it cost me in 2019, <laughs> you know, is, is a lot different. So you're exactly right. There are these cumulative impacts. I think, you know, wages have had a little bit of struggle, br broadly speaking, in the United States uh, to keep up with inflation until 2023. So 2022 was a tough year. Uh, wages for particularly for uh, some of the, um, you know, lower income households uh, where you didn't have wage growth uh, as strong as as inflation rates. Uh, 2023 is a little bit different. It's, it's been a little bit better for your typical household. Um, but again, very different if you're a renter uh, versus mm -hmm. if you're a homeowner. Yeah. Another important story. I know a lot of people in the room or clients are in their pre-retirement years going into retirement. That's another reason that when we build the retirement income plans, we have to have those raises built into that because even though you're not yeah. earning a paycheck anymore, your income does have to go up uh, because of inflation. So let's switch to the stock market now. Uh, talk a little bit about investing. Um, the S&P 500 up more than 14% this year. We talked, we alluded to that early on in the uh, discussion. The NASDAQ is up nearly 29%, um, but August has been rocky. You know, we, we always talk about the stock market always doesn't always make sense in the short term, but it does eventually return to fundamentals. And one of the most fundamental things in the uh, economy and in the market is earnings when it comes to corporations. So talk about where we are there. Uh, with corporate earnings, we we joke that this is the most uh, forecasted recession ever, <laughs> right? Or the most talked about. We're yeah. not even in one yet. 
Um, the good news about all that is when you go back all the way to end of 21, going into 2022, businesses have been managing headcount pretty aggressively, meaning that when you think about the risk of a slowdown, the consumer spending splurge, you know, starts to wane, businesses have been managing labor costs fairly well, generally speaking, across the country. And so because of that, when things eventually slow down, earnings aren't going to take a hit as much as we think they would otherwise. And, and it's interesting. You think about it, right? We've taught, we've been talking about recession. We being, you know, us prognosticators, you know, for a long time and look at how well 2023 is shaken out to be. Now, granted, we had a little bit of uh, shakiness the last week, uh, pulled back some of the gains we saw in July, but overall you really can't complain with the headwinds that we have. And the answer, the short answer is, you know, markets are thinking about 2024. They're right. not thinking about a recession uh, happening maybe by the end of the year. They're saying, okay, where are we and what are, what are uh, projections looking like in 2024? And it's, and it's not too bad, hence you have a fairly decent equity market. So if earnings are maybe not going to decline at the rate that maybe we thought, what does that mean for stocks? Yeah, I, th I think there, you know, there could be some choppiness, particularly, you know, the political component. Gentleman asked earlier, uh, I think you have some choppiness that's going to happen when you finally get to that point where, okay, we did all our vacations to Italy. Uh, you know, we're starting to kind of hunker down and kind of see how things, you know, shake out. Um, you know, markets will, will kind of react, maybe a little choppiness there. But I think, but again, I think this is, it's a forward looking market. Uh, it's important to remember, hence the value of a professional guidance counselor. I, I like to call advisors, guidance counselors, um, you know, talking through the, the areas where you might see opportunities and other areas where you say, okay, it's a little bit choppy. You avoid this area. With interest rates on CDs and that sort of money market accounts, that sort of thing, going up as much as they have in the last few months, really. Do you see that sucking money, sucking the investable funds out of the equities market hmm. and causing a, a shortage of supply there? Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. So if you think about, you know, your, you just, you know, your average investor and you're thinking, okay, we adjust to risk, right? We, we think about, am I getting compensated for taking on risk? Yeah. And I think you're exactly right. That's a very natural implication of higher rates on money market and CDs to say, okay, this is fairly risk-free risk, risk -free opportunity. And yes, uh, I think that, that is, there's always that opportunity cost, right? Mm. Uh, I, can, I can put it here, might have to deal with a lot more volatility, but maybe the long haul, right? We're long-term investors, we're looking for something, say, over you know a three to five year period over a risky asset. You think, oh yeah, wow, these are certainly attractive. So you're exact, absolutely correct that that's a very fair implication uh, of of rising rates. Um, you talked a little bit earlier about uh, French foreign minister some in 1969 alluding to privilege, and I've wondered with all the deficit spending, 32 trillion dollars in debt how we haven't hit like Argentina did with runaway inflation. And now we've got uh, 
China, Russia, a whole bunch of countries, especially China, communist China, investing into third world countries, and their goal is to supplant the dollar. Do you have anything you can answer about that? Possible in the future, near future, far future? Change it to however you want to, because yeah, I'm not yeah. sure what I really uh, asked her. Oh, that's that, no, that's a great question. Kind of going back to my uh, my parent hat. You know, one of the reasons. I mean, the the hope of this country is the next generation, right? And it's about property rights. It's about protecting entrepreneurship, and it's about attracting people that want to make a good living. So I am not a Californian at heart, but I will say, living in Silicon Valley made me the most pro-bull American investor ever because the reason why we're not Argentina is because the world comes here to learn, to, to create mm. and innovate. So if the next generation protects that, mm. we'll keep that privilege in, in having a, you know, a dollar that is really a, a global currency. Uh, the markets are stable. The contracts, I'm married to an attorney, so I'm interested in contracts. You, the, the ability to write uh, healthy contracts and dollar-denominated currencies, it, it, it's hard for me to argue in the, in the next you know, 15 years or, or even 20 years that, what, the euro is going to supplant the dollar, the yuan is going to supplant, you know, uh, it, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, it, it's important to kind of tie those all together. What are the key ingredients? Those three that I just talked about, entrepreneurship and innovation and property rights that protect the, the ability to reap the gains from your creation. Um, that is uniquely American. Historically, um, in past recessions, Arkansas has fared a little bit better than other areas of the country. Given the short ten-month recession that is being predicted for, what did you say, the end of the year, beginning of next year, do you see Arkansas faring a little bit better again? So you're exactly right. Some of these southeastern states, outside of Florida, Florida is its own animal. It's it's kind of the bore. Don't take this personally kind of that boring, you know, you're not seeing huge spikes, but you don't see deep troughs, right? And I think that kind of lower volatility kind of environment is, is why you get a little more of that stable experience if you're, if you're in that regional economy. Um, so South Carolina has BMW, right? Uh, Tennessee's got, you know, some autos. I got Alabama. Uh, you know, some of the Arkansas, you got some of these regions that are, are a little more stable. Um, you don't have, you know, like, think Marco Island. Uh, <laughs> that was one of the first towns to get hit when the housing market mm. popped. You know, so you got, that's why I like to say, forget Florida, don't put that in the same, you know, category. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think, you know, uh, economies like Arkansas, is slow and steady, you know, plain vanilla. Uh, again, don't take it personally, mm. but you know that that's 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 good in this environment. My dad said we don't get too big for our britches down here. That's what it is, right? You know, we talked a lot tonight about the economy, 
but we talk to our clients all the time. What matters most is their economy. When you look at all of this and, and, and everything that they've heard tonight, how should investors in this room, many of whom are on the verge of retiring, if not already have retired, how should they digest everything we've talked about tonight? Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, I would say invest and mentor the next generation. Be a mentor. I'll leave it at that. And then I'll say, um, what else? I think, you know, it's, I hinted at this where the, the experience of the post-pandemic economy is, is very individualistic. I, I, I made my joke about my, you know, negative 1,000 inflation rate. I think that's really important um, to think about where your own patterns are of consumption. Hmm. Fancy word for spending, your spending habits. Um, there are always opportunities, always opportunities to invest. Um, whether, you know, whether you're in the, you know, in, in a tight contracting period or in your growth uh, cycle, there's always opportunities. Um, look for those. Uh, I think, you know, yeah, the borrower is servant to the lender. That's a basic principle to take. Um, and I think, you know, access to credit can be good and helpful if you're growing a business, um, but it's not necessarily something that's good for everybody, mm. right? Accessing credit and, get, and getting into, uh, thinking about getting into debt in that way. I think that's another thing to take away. Um, I could say a few more things, but, uh, you know, that, that I think is, is, um, is key. There's always going to be opportunities. I, yeah, I'll leave it at this too then. I mean, there's, there's so much value in having personal guidance counselors in helping you think through that. If I keep on arguing for, hey, active management, right? Opportunities and things to avoid. Um, there, there's always that no matter where we are in the business cycle. Let's give Dr. Roach a round of applause. Thank him for being here tonight. Well, we hope you've enjoyed this very special edition of the Get Ready for the Future show. And our thanks once again to Dr. Jeffrey Roach, the chief economist for LPL Financial, for joining us for that special event for clients and guests. And if you'd like to get more on a weekly basis in a very short format, we offer you the fastest four minutes in finance. It's a four minute or less video delivered directly to your email inbox each week. If you'd like to start receiving that, just text the word FAST to 501-381-5228. Again, that number is 501-381-5228. Text the word FAST and begin receiving the fastest four minutes in finance. We will see you again next week for another edition of the Get Ready for the Future show. Thank you for listening to the Get Ready for the Future show. If you enjoy hearing from the Gen Wealth team every week, make sure and subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help us get the word out on building toward financial independence, share the podcast with your friends and family. The Gen Wealth financial team is available to you 24-7 at info at getreadyforthefuture.com or call our offices at 866-653-PLAN. That's 866-653-7526. You should personally consult a financial advisor before making any investment and no strategy can assure success. Securities offered through LPL Financial. Member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Independent Advisor Alliance. Independent Advisor Alliance and GenWealth Financial Advisors are separate entities from LPL Financial.